Well, good morning, Austin Oaks Church. So good to see you. It is officially vest weather, which is awesome, um, which means fall, um, at least for me, it does. My name is Brian Ziski, the lead pastor here. Our heartbeat is to help people meet, know, and follow Jesus because we believe to our core that when you encounter Jesus, it changes everything in your life. We've been going through the book of Acts um, all year, and if you were with us maybe for the last two years, we've been journeying through Luke's two volumes, the Gospel of Luke and Acts. They're kind of one the same, but volume one and volume two. And this week and next week, we are wrapping up this series. And so this morning, we're going to be covering a lot of ground. We're going to be in Acts chapter 21, 22, and 23, okay? But we're really just going to look at verse 11 of chapter 23, so... Just saying that. This morning, however, this message this morning is going to be a challenge that requires us to have a sober mind. It's going to require us to be honest and transparent with ourselves, with others, and with God. It's going to be a challenge that if we allow it to, it will grab into your chest and grab your heart and shake it. I do believe that how we engage and interact with this message this morning from God's word, it will reveal to us as a church if we desire to be a movement of God or just another church that is all about ourselves. How about that for a setup? Here's the verse that we're going to be looking at primarily. Chapter 23, verse 11. The following night the Lord stood by him, him being Paul, and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. So this morning I want to talk to you about motivation. I want to talk to you about what is that compelling, motivating force in your life when it comes to following Jesus. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I ask that this morning your spirit is crystal clear. I know that in of myself, my strength, my own mind, God, I cannot convey the depths of your love. So, Lord, I pray like Paul prays in Ephesians 3, that through your spirit we would come to know and see the love that you have for us. How high, wide, and deep is the love of Christ. So, God, I ask that you would do this. And I pray that this is where we find our very core. What motivates us, what compels us to do all that we do in our life. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do what you do best. In Jesus' name, amen. I am not by nature a very disciplined or organized person. I mean, if the motivation to do X, Y, and Z isn't compelling enough, I'm just not going to do it. I might start out trying, but I surely won't sustain it or be consistent about it, regardless if I know doing X, Y, and Z is the right thing to do or it's the best thing to do. Like, if it's not compelling enough, I just simply won't do it. So let's just get real practical for a moment, and let's just talk about our diets, okay? Because that is my main issue in life. And I'm starting to experience the phenomenon of getting older and realizing I can't eat like I'm a 20-year-old anymore because my metabolism is not even existent. 
It's just like, it's, it's like slowing down and I'm discovering that what I eat truly affects like how I feel each and every day. It actually affects like my, my mental capacity, my productivity. And, it, and I'm becoming even more aware that what, how I eat today is going to set up my future and my health and all that kind of stuff. But I'm going to tell you what, even though I know that to be true, it's still not enough to force me to change my dietary habits and passions of brisket, queso, and my late-night binge cereal eating. Yeah. Like, we know it's not good. We know what we're going to reap because of what we're sowing, but it's just simply not enough. Now, however, when I see myself in a picture or when I see myself on a video screen and it hits me, this is what they have to look at? All of a sudden, I have a compelling motivation to change. It's vain. I know. Okay? I get it. Or when I realize I no longer fit into certain jeans and I have to buy jeans and I just, I'm too cheap to do that. Like, what compels us? What motivates us to do what we do in life? And I'm not just talking about the easy things. I'm like, I want to talk about, like, the hard things. And, and I'm not picking on runners, but I'm going to pick on runners because I think running is one of the most crazy bizarre, self-pain-inflicted thing, and I just don't get it. I try to run, and I'm like, this just sucks. <laughs> like, I don't get it. I mean, are they just gluttons for pain? Like, no. Like, there is a compelling reason for it. Like, why do I choose to run when I already know I hate it? Well, there's a motivation behind it. I don't want to be unhealthy. I chose a different word. <laughs> Right, but like what motivates runners to like be a runner like for the long haul? Is it like, is there a competition they want to go for, a goal? Or maybe just like even though I don't get it, is there like a love of running? Like there has to be something deep. So like whatever our compelling motivating force is, no matter what it is in life, if you strip it back and you pull back the layers, you will discover that whatever is motivating you, Love of something or love for something is there. Love is what fuels whatever motivation or compelling force you have in life. So yeah, if you're running, you love something. Something is there. Maybe it's just because you do love running or maybe it is because you want to be healthy. Whatever it is, but some sort of form of love is driving it. Why follow Jesus? I mean, following Jesus is hard. It's the greatest thing you can ever do in your life, but it's hard. And I'm not talking about, like, the simple cultural identification. Yeah, I go to church. I'm a Christian. I'm talking about those who have, like, professed faith and believe in Jesus, who are striving to live after Jesus, whose life they're striving to be one marked with obedience, where they're living on a mission and trying their best. Like, why do we follow Jesus? Like, why do we give up our rights and lay down our freedoms and sacrifice for others? Like, why do we strive to be generous and strive to love other people the way we love ourselves? Like, why do we even strive to pray for our enemies or even confess sins? Like, what is it inside of us? Why speak Jesus? Why live publicly for Jesus? Why do we take those risks of embarrassment and, uh, and take on those personal costs? I mean, most of us, like, right, if we were honest, most of us know what is right and wrong when it comes to following Jesus. Yeah, I know 
I should confess my sin. I know I should share Jesus. I know what this looks like. I know I should carry my cross where I exchange my way of life for his way of life. That I'm no longer living out my purposes, but I'm embracing his purposes. Like we know that heaven and hell are on the line. We know that we're called to be his witnesses and we know we're to make disciples. But knowing all of that, just like knowing eating brisket every day isn't good, but sometimes even though we know what's right and what's good and true doesn't mean we're motivated to do it. And I want to ask the question, why? Why? Because here's the deal. And I know a lot of us go, well, because we're sinful. Absolutely. But let's just hone in on something specific. We need to recognize and see what is motivating us. Why we do what we do. Why do we do what we do? Is God's love better, greater, sweeter than any other thing competing for your heart? It's a great question. Acts 23, 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. Now, I realize there's context that leads up to this verse, and we're going to get to that. But I want us to see some things on the forefront of this message so that we can get a sense of what we can expect. I mean, anytime you see a verse that like, talks about like, how Jesus either literally or like, spiritually, maybe it's just a sense in his spirit that Jesus was standing by someone, should tell us that that individual needed some sort of comfort or some sort of encouragement. Like he's gone through something rather difficult and emotionally taxing, right? I am here with you. It's this idea. I'm standing with you. You're not alone. And then you see the first words that come out are, have courage, Take heart. So that should be telling us something about this scene. And I love the way Jesus speaks into this. He's like, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem. Like, Paul, you didn't shrink back. You didn't see the obstacles and the persecution and all the things that came at you as a means to throw in the proverbial, like, towel of faith and just call it a day and come back tomorrow. No, you stayed faithful. You didn't retreat. You didn't close your mouth. You did it because you loved me and you were dispensing grace and joy. Paul, guess what? You get another opportunity to do this in Rome. Something had to have been motivating Paul or compelling Paul to do what he did in Jerusalem. Because Paul's not sadistic. Like, we tend to think, like, he's just out for pain. He's not a runner. <laughs> Something deeper had to be there. Like, you don't need courage if you're not going to do something that's going to be challenging. Like, that would be the most pointless thing to say. Paul, have courage. Great, I'm just going to sit back and do nothing. I need courage to be lazy. No, like there had to be obstacles, difficulties, tensions, misunderstandings, slandering, something that would, could have caused Paul to throw on the towel or to have his, uh, his, his motivating force challenged or shaken. And so in order for us to follow Jesus like we ought to, and to have the courage to keep on, no matter what obstacles and what circumstances, what things come at us, 
In order to have courage, friends, to live a life of faith out loud, publicly, we have to have a compelling, motivating force that is rooted and founded in something radically life-changing, radically life-altering and defining to the point that you're willing to lose it all and see that as gain. What is it? What is this compelling, motivating force? All right. Now let's talk about what led up to this verse because this is important. We're going to go now to Acts chapter 21, starting at verse 17. And I want to encourage you, because I'm going to summarize the majority of this, and I want to encourage you, spend some time reading through chapter 21, 22, and 23. If you're in a small group and if you're following along, this is a great opportunity to dig into this together. Verse 17 of chapter 21 starts out with Paul coming to Jerusalem. And he's primarily coming back to Jerusalem to report to the church, the mothership church in Jerusalem, all that God has been doing in Asia Minor. Talking about how God has been reaching the Gentiles and how the Jews are also coming to faith in Jesus. And so it's a moment of celebrating what God has done. But also Paul is bringing the offering that was collected by the Gentile churches because in Jerusalem, the rumor was being like starting to be told that there's possibly two different denominations being formed. Like the church of the Jews and the Gentiles. But Paul's like, no, this offering shows that we are all in it together. So Paul was trying to show the unity that was won through the cross and saying, we're in this together. There aren't two different churches. But as he's telling this to James and the other leaders, we can look at verse 19. It, it's, it, this is fascinating because after greeting them, he related to them one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. They're like, this is amazing. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They're like, so many of our Jewish brothers and sisters have professed faith in Jesus. Oh, but they're also zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to walk um, according or not, not to circumcise children or walk according to our customs. Well, what then is to be done? Because they will certainly hear that you have come. It's almost as if like the leaders of the church just like couldn't really like truly celebrate. Because now they're worried about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And what they actually said there is, is a rumor. The word on the street, Paul, that people are spreading about you here. Is that you're telling our fellow Jewish brothers and sisters to abandon the customs. Which is so not true. Like Paul did speak about the law and how the law is fulfilled and it's no longer needed because it's fulfilled in Christ and we're under a new covenant. But Paul never went around and told his Jewish brothers and sisters to completely disregard being Jewish. He, he didn't do that. So this is a straight up lie. It's a slander that's happening. Like Paul would be willing to do anything and everything to reach his brothers and sisters. If you read Romans 9, he was even to the point, it's like, man, if, if I can go to hell for them, I would do that. That. Like, he's willing to do whatever it takes to see his brothers and sisters see Jesus. And so James tells Paul, hey, to show solidarity with our Jewish brothers and sisters, why don't you partake of some of our Jewish customs? And he does it willingly. Because to Paul, and like in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, hey, to the weak I became weak. To the strong I became strong. To the Jew I became like a Jew. Why? 
to win them. So Paul was willing to lay down whatever rights and privilege that he had. What was compelling him to do that? Well, as it happened, verse 27, as they're there, some, some Jews from Asia Minor, remember Ephesus and the crazy stuff that happened there? These are those guys. They came to Jerusalem. They're crying out, verse 28, men of Israel, help with Paul in the temple. They're saying this right there. This man is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks in the temple and has defiled this holy place. Then all the city, verse 30, was astir, and the people ran together. This is a lie. Paul is not against the people. He's not even against the law. He's like, no, I'm for the law. The law has been fulfilled in Jesus. That's what I'm trying to tell you. But they're like, no, you're against what we believe, so therefore you're against the people. It's no different than how culture talks about Christians today. Christians are against the people. They're intolerant. They're bigots. They're oppressive. No. We believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We are way more for people than, we, than we're not, even though we struggle with that at times. And so this chaos ensues, and this riot happens, and then the next thing you know, they're dragging Paul out of the temple. They shut the gates, and they are just wailing on Paul. Wailing on Paul. Commotion spreads. The Roman soldiers hear it, and the tribune's like, what's going on? They have to enter into the scene and grab Paul and rescue him out of it. They actually had to pick him up out of the crowd because it was so intense. They chained Paul by his wrists and his legs, and they led him into the barracks. And as they're doing this, Like, this is just fascinating to me. They're talking. Paul speaks in Greek. They're like, oh, you speak Greek? They had no idea because they assumed that he was a terrorist from Egypt. And also, like, he speaks Greek. And then look at what Paul says. Like, he asked them to speak. He asked them to speak to the crowd. May I say something to you? Look at verse 39. Who are you? Well, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Sicilia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Hey, I beg you, can I go back and talk to those people who are just beating me? What? <laughs> he must be a runner. <laughs> like, like I wouldn't do that. I'm just being honest. He's asking the Roman guards, the centurions, and the tribune, please let me go back and talk to them. I'm telling you right now, for me, my motivation, two things would have came out of my mouth in that moment. One, give me a new identity and get me out of here. Or two, I'm not the bad guy. They are, and that justice on them. But that is not Paul's heart. That's where we guys start leaning in. Like, what is motivating Paul? Like, what is driving Paul to go towards his enemies in that very moment that he was beaten? It reminds me of Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. What gives him the courage to go back to what we would say logically looks reckless and foolish? 
He doesn't see this as an obstacle. He sees it as an opportunity to talk to people about Jesus. And so he goes back out, chapter 22, verse 1. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense I now make before you. Let me explain to you what I'm trying to tell you before you all interrupted me. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet, which is rather fascinating. It was just like this riot that was just shouting chaos, just like quieted down in a hush because he was speaking Hebrew. Verse 3, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicilia, which is an important city to them. I was brought up in this city, a.k.a. Jerusalem. Many of you in this crowd know me. You've seen me. We did stuff together. We talked Torah together. We even persecuted other Christians together. You know this. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel, the most important and prominent rabbi of our time, according to the strict manner of the law of the fathers, I was on a fast track. I was being promoted. I was giving great opportunities. They saw something in me because not only am I a Jew and a Pharisee, but I'm also a Roman citizen. They were prepping me and priming me for a great role. I was underneath this great teacher being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I love that line. Like, I thought what I was doing was right. So guys, I, I don't, I'm not offended by you. I get it. I know why you're doing this. I know why you attacked me. Because I did the same thing. I see that you're zealous for the law. I don't blame you. I get it. Guys, Paul Let's remember, he was an evil guy. Evil. Violent in his heart, but he thought he was being righteous. He thought he was doing good. Like, he persecuted this way. Like, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Like, I did exactly this. I ruined families. I destroyed families. I created and committed hate crimes. I did that. Look at the vulnerabilities, like in the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. They know I was so zealous, I went there and asked for a letter so I could go to Damascus and get those Christians that ran away. And some of those, those guys right here in the Sanhedrin, they're in this crowd. Just ask them. They signed that letter. This is Paul saying, I once was. I once was. I thought I was doing right. I thought I was doing right. I thought I was living right. I thought I was believing right. I once was this. But then it changes. But Jesus. Verse 6. As I was on my way to Damascus about noon, this light falls down and I get knocked off my horse. And I hear this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I had no idea what was going on. And I'm like, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. I was terrified. I got like, I'm reading in between the lines here, but terrified. Go to Damascus and wait and you'll be told what to do. I can imagine what Paul had to have been feeling in that moment now that he's blind. 
Is the wrath of God going to fall on me? Am I going to be judged for what I did? Oh my goodness, I missed the Messiah. How could I? I am over. I am finished. Friends, if Paul was seen to be doing what he did then in our today's culture, he would be canceled just like that. And here he is, he's like terrified of what's going to happen. And he's waiting in Damascus for three days. And all of a sudden this guy shows up. Ananias, verse 12, a devout man according to the law, well spoken to Jews, he came to me, standing by me and said, brother Saul. And when I heard that word brother, I was like, what? How can you call me brother? That was my first taste of grace in that moment. Brother Saul, receive your sight. In that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And then he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, the Messiah, Jesus, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Friends, I was shown grace and mercy. I received new life and new purpose and a new understanding. I was deserving of death. I was an enemy of God and I didn't even know it. His wrath was just to fall on me. I did not get what I deserved, but he extended grace and mercy to me, and I got what I didn't deserve instead. I once was brothers. I once was sisters. But Jesus, lost, dead, murderer, evil, destroyer, families committing hate crimes, judgment, arrogant, proud, zealous for his own truth and his own reality. I once was an enemy of God, but Jesus... What was the compelling, motivating force in Paul's life? Verse 22 of chapter 22. He's like, I wanted to stay in Jerusalem and tell you all about Jesus. But God said, no, you go and preach to the Gentiles. And the moment that Paul said this, the temple erupted again. And another riot broke out. And they're essentially saying, away with him, kill him, be done with him. Right? And they're throwing dust in the air. And the tribune and the soldiers have to rescue and save Paul again. And they pull him out. And this time, the Romans are like, okay, there's something to this guy. And so they tied him to a flogging post. Because that's how the Romans interrogated people. Like, they didn't have truth serum. That's a funny little thing, movie. But, like, like they put him to a flogging post because they're like, this is our truth serum. And they were going to flog him to the point of death to get something out of Paul. As Paul is chained up on the flogging post, he drops this line. Hey, is it legal for you to flog a Roman who's uncondemned? They're like, whoa. Because Paul's like, I'm a Roman. Because if a Roman flogs a Roman citizen without being tried and found innocent, death to that soldier. And so they immediately went, oh my gosh. And they backed off. The next day, the tribune is just like, okay, something has to give Okay, what do we do? So he calls the Sanhedrin together, and he puts Paul in front of the Sanhedrin. And Paul doesn't give the normal greeting, like, your honor to the Sanhedrin. Like, there is a protocol to addressing the Sanhedrin, and he doesn't do it. He puts himself on level ground with the Sanhedrin because he's like, I've been here before. A lot of you know that. I've had a seat at this table. He addresses them equally. There's a new high priest who orders someone to smack Paul in the mouth. 
So Paul's talking, all of a sudden someone blindsides him and just goes, bam! And Paul, the sinner, shows up. Because Paul, like, that was illegal. That's against Jewish law. And Paul, in that moment, he's just like, you whitewashed tomb. He just, like, throws out this insult, which is like Jesus says, like, you know, don't return an insult with an insult. Bless. And, like, Paul just went, Rah! And then you can see someone else is like, Paul, you can't do that either. And Paul, like, in his humility, immediately goes, oh, my goodness, you're right. I'm sorry. So, like, to me, I go, man, Paul had the humility enough to even confess his own sin in front of his enemies. But they're like, Paul, why are you here? What is this all about? And 23 verse 6 shows up. I am a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. Because he knows that what he's about to say is truth, but he also knows it's going to cause a debate in there. Because the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, but the Pharisees do. But he's like, listen, guys, we know Jesus This is the linchpin. He rose. He resurrected from the dead. I am here is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm in trial. And the third chaos breaks out. Debate between the Sadducees and the Pharisees and Paul's just sitting there. And all of a sudden they say he's innocent. But they didn't like that. And all of a sudden a craziness goes off again and they're trying to kill Paul again. And then we see, I want you to see this. Verse 10 of chapter 23. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces, torn to pieces, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, Paul, you get to do it again in Rome. (laughs) So now I know your reaction to that verse. How would you respond? Like, that's the challenge. Jesus is saying to Paul, I'm with you. I'm here with you. Take courage. Remember my spirit will give you the words when you're dragged in front of courts, when you're being accused. Remember that if they persecute you, it's because of me. Be blessed. Remember you are blessed. All these things. I'm here with you. Take heart. Take courage. You get to do this all over again in Rome. Paul, this is the path I have for you. And I know it might look like obstacles or negative circumstances and the culture is against it and the people are your enemies and slandering you and making all sorts of accusations against you. But Paul, take heart. Friends, Paul is not the hero of the story. Paul is not some sort of biblical superhero that we cannot relate with, even though we oftentimes do that. We go, oh man, Paul's amazing. Paul has this. Paul's like this. Like, friends, like, we are very much the same. Sure, different culture, different context, different skill set, different brain, all that kind of stuff, absolutely. But we are exactly the same as Paul. We are a broken, sinful human race in need of a Savior. Paul once lived a certain way. 
you once lived a certain way. And while we were enemies of God, he sent his son to die for us. We didn't earn our salvation. We didn't understand Jesus. It wasn't until he opened up our eyes and we saw it. And so now I am this. Paul is just like us. So when we read this, this is a great example for us is how to follow Jesus. Like, what does it look like? Like, how do we learn to see all of our circumstances and our obstacles and our lot in life in the path that is set before us as opportunities to love Jesus and to present the gospel? Like, this is a major challenge. Paul could only do what Paul did. And he will only be able to do what he was going to do in Rome if and only if the love of Christ is the deep and divine and the unconditional, compelling, motivating force in his life. It was the love of Jesus. And so this is the question that I need us to be honest with. Is the love of Jesus your compelling, motivating force in your life? Out of the heart come the words and the actions. What is the compelling motivated force in your life? Is the love of Jesus that? Is it enough for us to live a life out loud, live publicly for him? To see these circumstances that are like maybe full of suffering and persecution and misunderstanding? Do we see that as an opportunity to be blessed and to be like Jesus and to rejoice in it? Or do we see them as like great obstacles and movements where we're like, ah, that's not it. It's not even compelling enough for me to give up the other affection and desires in my heart. Like why do many of us struggle with living a life of obedience? Again, yeah, we can just say sin, but I think it's important for us to dig a little bit deeper on that. The reason why many of us struggle with it is because there's other compelling, motivating loves in your heart. There's other affections that are competing for your attention in your heart. Look at what you do. Look at how you live. Look at what you prioritize. All of those things reveal what's there. And and this is where I want us to turn the corner because it's something that I say often in this church and it's absolutely true is that the problem that we have is not that we don't love God enough and that's how we start to think, I gotta love God more, I gotta love God more, I gotta try harder, I gotta do this more. No. The problem is is that we don't understand how much God loves us because that's what compels us. It's not my love for God that compels me. Oh my goodness, that would be the most fickle and pathetic thing if that was the case. It's the love of Christ that motivates us. And so we need to go, what is the love of God and what does this look like in my life? How is the love of Christ the most compelling and motivating thing in my life? It's hard to follow Jesus. It's hard to give up your rights. It's hard to sacrifice. It's hard to bless those who curse you. It's hard to extend forgiveness to those who have wronged you and who aren't willing to reconcile with you. It's hard to love your enemies and to pray for your enemies. Man, it's hard. That's why we need something so deep and so radically changing that it's worth losing everything for. And there's only one thing 
that is worth that. It's Jesus. And so many of us, we know what is right. We know what is true. We know what we ought to be doing. But friends, this is a tough statement, and I believe it to be true because I looked at my own heart and my own life. Because at times there are other affections and loves in my heart, like I can begin to demand of God that I should be able to live a better life than Jesus lived. I mean, did Jesus die on the cross? Did he take on flesh and come from heaven to earth so that we could be set free in order to live a life of luxury, comfort, a privatized faith with little obligation? No. No, he he came to free us from our sin, to restore us, to redeem us to be moved into a relationship with Jesus and to anchor our very lives in his love so that everything in our life, how we see people, how we see money, how we see current events is all rooted through Jesus. So I want to be clear and honest. We will not follow Jesus like Paul did here. I mean, granted, you might not be martyred for the sake of following Jesus, but to Say, yes, I'm in. I get another opportunity. We will not follow Jesus like this if we're not captivated by Jesus. And this is how he did that. Here's how Paul stayed captivated. He remembered his story, not his religion. He remembered his story. I once was but Jesus. I once was, but Jesus. Religion would be like, I did this, I did this, I did this. He's like, no more. I am made righteous by Jesus. Jesus alone. Paul never, ever, ever got tired talking about the love of Jesus. He never got tired of telling his story. He never shied away from it. And we know this because like we have so many of his letters where his opening lines were grace and peace and mercy. Like he never got tired remembering and telling people where he came. He would even say, I was like the chief of sinners. Like he loved me and he saved me. He remembered the source of his love. He remembered that it was Jesus who initiated it. If we go to Ephesians chapter (coughs) 2, Paul writing on this specifically, he goes like, guys, you were dead in your trespasses. I once was in which we all walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power there, the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, who's rich in mercy, saved by grace, through faith, not by works, I once was an enemy of God. I once was an object of wrath, but now because of his mercy and his grace, I have peace with Jesus and I've been made alive and it has nothing to do with me. Can you believe it? It's not dependent upon what I do, but what he did for me. I can never get tired of saying this. The love of Christ was his compelling story. I don't deserve it. I once was, but Jesus Romans 5, 8. Now, if we've died with Christ and we believe that we've also lived with him, we know, I'm sorry, that's chapter 6, 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that. He demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. The love of God is not an emotion, friends. Culture has watered down love to what you feel. In fact, you can even make it. No. The love of God is an action. God showed us. He demonstrated his love this way. How? He died while you were an enemy. Well, I didn't feel God. I don't feel his love. Well, does that then negate the very fact that God showed his love for all time? I mean, God never said you'll feel it. I don't have the goose pimples. I'm not feeling close. It's not a promise. God so loved the world that he gave. He demonstrated this way. In fact, Jesus, did you know this? Jesus himself had a compelling, motivating factor to do what he did. Hebrews 12, 2. It was a joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. What was that joy? Being obedient to the Father and knowing that he's making a way for us to be restored in right relationship with God again. That's what motivated him. The problem isn't that we don't love God enough. Give that up. The problem is, is that we just don't know how much God loves us. Do you know how much God loves you? It's hard to believe, but do you know? Acts 23, 11. Take courage, Paul. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must testify also in Rome. The love of Christ is what compelled Paul. So what does it mean to be compelled by God's love? I want to give us three things. And this is all rooted out of 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 20. And here Paul says, the love of Christ controls me, or the love of Christ compels me. And what we see in this is that the love of Christ, being compelled by the love of Christ means that we begin to understand that love is an action and not an emotion. It's not an emotion, but it's an action. When we look at this, we see it clearly. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. He demonstrated it for us. He doesn't just have good feelings about us. He doesn't just feel things when he wakes up in the morning and goes, oh man, I love so-and-so. That's so great. No, he acts. God acts. How do you know God loves you? He died for you. Who does that? The second thing we see when we're compelled by the love of Christ is that we begin to see people through the heart of Jesus. Because Paul would say here in 2 Corinthians 5, like, we no longer see people according to the flesh. I, I, I no longer see them as my enemies. I see them how Jesus sees them. I want to tell them about Jesus. And last and surely not least, 
when the love of Christ compels us, it means that we will follow Jesus publicly. <laughs> we will live a life out loud. Because Paul says, like, we are his ambassadors. You, you can't be an ambassador if you're not telling people about Jesus. That means you're living publicly. And so when the love of Christ grabs hold of us, we begin to act this way and to move this way. And it almost happens naturally. So as we come to a time of communion, this is a great moment for us to respond to the love of God. And, and there's a few things I want to encourage us to be thinking about and doing. Specifically, like, and I'm not doing this just because next week is Celebration Sunday. It's because I do believe in the power of baptism. It's like I'm choosing to not be ashamed. I'm choosing to be obedient because that's what love looks like is doing what Jesus tells us to do. And if you've never been baptized and you have faith in Jesus, I want to encourage you to sign up to get baptized and do it now. Or maybe you've been baptized as a youngster and you don't re really know why you did. Great opportunity to do so. And then you got these things on your seats. It's a tool. It's a tool that we want you to use to do one or two things with. Or you can create your own meaning on it. Invite someone, not necessarily to church, even though we, we encourage that, but it'd be amazing if this was like a time for you to go, how can I actually share my story with someone? And the story is framed this way. I once was, but Jesus. And write down those names of the people we've been praying for. Have an opportunity pray for God to give you an opportunity to share your story with them and to listen to their story with them. And we do encourage you to invite them to Celebration Sunday so they can hear stories of life change. Stories of I once was, but now Jesus. And so I wanted to do this. I just felt stirred in my spirit before I came up to preach just to give us some time to reflect. And, and I want us to think and dwell about the love of Christ. And I want you to think about the cross, and I want you to think about the resurrection, and I want you to think about him giving us the Holy Spirit, and I want you to think about communion and what that symbolizes and how it's a picture, a symbol, how he gave us his body to be broken and how he shed his blood for us. And if you struggle this morning right now with knowing the love of God, if God loves you, I want this, I, I, I want, I asked them, well, I asked someone to ask them to sing the goodness of God during this time of reflection before we go into communion. Because Paul says in Ephesians 3, right, that like we, we need the Holy Spirit to pray for the Holy Spirit to show us the love of Christ. And so I want to encourage you just to pray that God would show you his love for you. Father, I pray that with the body, you would show us the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding, the love that is so wide and so deep and so high and so long. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room who have a hard time believing that you love them, 
that maybe they've sinned so much, how could God love them? Allow Paul to be a great testimony to them. You don't cancel people, you pursue people, you love people, your love can forgive any and all sin. God, I pray that you would just speak, Holy Spirit, would you reveal to us the love that you have for us.